If you're anything like me, and you may not be, uh, and if I were you, I probably wouldn't want to be, but if you're anything like me, you have a real love of music. Uh, Matter of fact, most every day of my life uh, has some type of connection to music. Um, In my house, I'm usually the first one up. That means that I go to the kitchen before the sun comes up, I get a pot of coffee started, I grab my Bible or grab a book that I've been reading devotionally or something like that, and then I pick a playlist. And I either put on Christian instrumental or I put some other type of Christian music on, some old stuff, some new stuff. Uh, I just consider it all good stuff. And then I go to my study and then I spend some time reading. And I feel like music makes that time richer. I feel like music makes that time better because I feel that's what music does to all parts of life. I feel like music just makes life better. Uh, Consequently, I've got music playlists for lots of things. When I'm in my office working, I've got music that I love to listen to. Sometimes it's country, sometimes it's 80s, sometimes it's classical. I mean, it it really does. It's a buffet. Uh, I can listen to it all. I have music that I love to listen to while I'm running, uh, when I'm working out. And my newest hobby is to mow grass. Uh, I've taken up mowing grass since all of this quarantine. So I've got a couple of playlists that I love to listen to as I mow grass because I just think that music makes things better. It really is a part of my everyday life. I think that music adds a flavor to life that just wouldn't be present if music wasn't there. And so even if you're not a music person, and even if you don't know the first thing about music, the one thing that I think all of us have to admit is few things are as powerful uh, as music. Uh, Music has the ability to calm us down. It has the ability to fire us up. Uh, Music, it it can cause us to relive a memory from long ago as if it was happening in the moment. Um, It's music that can take good food and great friends around the table and make it even better. I mean, how's that even possible to take good friends and good food and and make that better? It's music. Uh, Do it again next time and notice what it's like without music compared to what that dinner party's like with music. Music just makes things better. Imagine your favorite movie. Imagine your favorite television show without music behind it. Um, I I dare you sometime today to watch television and when you're watching it and you get sucked into the drama of it all or you get sucked into the moment of it all, just notice what it would be like without music. No wonder Plato, and you know, Plato was an incredible philosopher and so he had a lot of time to think about a lot of things that we don't have time to think about, but he said music gives a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and and then listen to this, I love this, life to everything. It's music that gives us the language of emotions. Uh, Tolstoy, he said music is shorthand for our emotions. Uh, Victor Hugo said that music at times says the words that we can't find. Um, That's how music works. But as powerful as music may be, When you add words to music and you create a song, something magical happens, something even more powerful happens. When you pair music and a song together, it has the ability to uncover what was inside of us that we didn't even know was there. Uh, Songs, they have the ability to help us see what we didn't see before. It it helps us to hear what we couldn't hear before. That's, That's how powerful songs actually are. Someone said this, that when the right combination of words, melody, and rhythm all come together, 
it becomes magic for us. And we've all experienced that, the power of not only music, but the power of a song. Now, you may not be aware of this, but inside your Bible, in the part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, inside your Bible is a book called Psalms. And the book of Psalms is a collection of songs, and just not a collection of songs, but a collection of ancient songs. There's actually 150 songs that have been collected and preserved and placed within one particular book that we call Psalms. Uh, Some of our favorite verses of scripture, some of our favorite passages of scripture are found in the Psalms. Psalms like 124, that says, I will lift mine eyes into the hills from which comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Uh, Psalms like 124 that says, if it had not been for the Lord who was on my side, and then the songwriter just goes on to say, all the calamity that would have fallen at our feet had it not been for the Lord who was on our side. Psalm eight, which is one of my favorites. Uh, I, I love that particular Psalm at night, which was a song. This is when I considered the sun and the moon and the stars and the works of your finger, God, I think to myself, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or Psalm 19, along the same theme, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 27, right? You, you remember that maybe once upon a time? This is the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? These just aren't verses. Uh, this is just not, you know, writing. Th- these, these were songs put to music. And so right in the middle of our Bible, we have this incredibly powerful book because music and songs are so powerful. And so we have lyrics preserved for us from generation after generation after generation. G. Campbell Morgan, he, he said this about the Psalms. He says, the book of Psalms is the book in which the emotions of the human soul find expression. I'm gonna say that one more time because uh, you probably weren't ready for it and you may have already tuned out because I just geeked out uh, for the past couple of minutes about music and songs. But listen to what he says. He says, the book of Psalms is the book in which the emotions of the human soul find expression. Whatever your mood, and I suppose you have changing moods as I do, he said, I can find you a psalm that will express your mood. Are you glad? I can find you a psalm that you can sing. Are you sad? I can find you a psalm that will suit the occasion. He goes on, he says, the psalms range over the whole gamut of human emotions. They were written for us in the consciousness of and in the sense of the presence of God. In every one of these psalms from the first to the last, whatever the particular tone, whether it's major or minor, the singer is always conscious of God. That gives peculiar character to the book of Psalms or the book of songs. So when it comes to the 150 songs that have been preserved for us in the book of Psalms, it's my opinion that one rises above the rest. One particular song that really captures the essence of the human experience. And of course, you guessed it, that's Psalm 23. So I wanna read to you those words one more time. I'm gonna read it this time out of the New King James Version. And over the course of this series, I'm gonna read you Psalm 23 from many different translations so that all of us can better grasp these words that many of us have heard before, but we've never spent very much time to think about. Listen 
to the words of this song. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For generations, the anxious have latched onto these words and found peace. Grieving widows have left the side of a freshly dug grave clenching hard to the promise of these words. Children have memorized these verses only to return to these verses later on in some of the darkest hours of their adult experience. These words have been spoken to the hurting and read at the bedside of the sick. They've been made into bookmarks. They've been made into pictures and they've been framed and hung in hospitals. They've been etched in prison walls and quoted by children and whispered from the lips of those who were dying. Psalm 23 is widely known, but nobody is ever gonna dispute that it is also widely loved. Max Licato, he said these words. He said, in these lines of Psalm 23, sailors have found a harbor, the frightened have found a father, and the struggling well, they have found a friend. I can remember being in the church that I grew up in and being in my Sunday school class, which was located in the basement of that church, the first door on the left. The walls uh, were painted cement block and I would go into that Sunday school class as a kid and like many of you, I was given some scissors and I was given a picture to color and then there was a Bible lesson and, and I can remember being taught very early on as a child to memorize and to quote the verses of Psalm 23. And maybe you had the same experience. Maybe in a Sunday school class, maybe your parents, maybe your grandparents, uh, maybe somewhere along the way you were challenged and you memorized the words of Psalm 23. But in all of our familiarity with Psalm 23, I fear that we have lost a sense of its significance. And I fear that we have lost maybe just how meaningful the words actually were intended to be. Psalm 23 has been called the passage that is most known, but perhaps least understood. We know what it says, but I'm not sure if we all know what it means. So here's what I wanna do. I, I wanna take Psalm 23 over the next few weeks. These, these words that have been iconalized and placed within stone inside of Christian culture. And I want us just to shatter the stone. And I want us to pick up those pieces piece by piece, and I want us to revisit, and I want us to re-experience these words of this song that's an ancient song that we have heard so many times, but somewhere along the way in our adult experience, we got away from the relevance, we got away from the significance, we got away from the meaning of what the songwriter was communicating, not only to his own life, but to our lives as well. So that's what we're gonna do over the next few weeks. We're gonna take this psalm, this song apart, and we're gonna revisit it, and hopefully we're gonna re-experience 
in a way that we never forget for the rest of our lives. Now, as we talk about this song and we talk about just how iconic it is, if we're gonna understand the meaning of it, if we're gonna understand what it means for you and what it means for me, we just have to begin at the beginning. And whenever you talk about a song, if you wanna understand the meaning behind the song, have you ever, have you ever done that? You, you're driving down the road and you know, you've been listening to the song for years and then all of a sudden you think to yourself, I wonder what inspired this song? What was the event? What was the circumstance? What was the situation? And then maybe you Googled, you know, the story behind the song. And, and if we're gonna get the story behind the song of Psalm 23, we've gotta begin with the writer, the composer. And that was David. If you're not familiar with the story of David, uh, also referred to as King David, it is one of the greatest stories in all of scripture. He was the second king of Israel. He was actually crowned uh, in 1010 BC. It's a matter of history. In 1010 BC, David was crowned the second king over Israel. He's been called a man of both passion and destiny. Uh, He's a man of extremely rare qualities that are found in combination with each other. He was a poet, but yet he was a warrior. You, You don't find a lot of those. He was tough, but at the same time, he was tender. He was decisive, yet wise. He was courageously assertive, but yet he was humble. His hands were skilled enough to play a a stringed instrument, but at the same time, those hands, well, (laughs) those hands could kill you. And the reason that so many people love David and we love his story is because we can relate to the story of David. Everyone can because he experienced much of what you've experienced in life and what I've experienced in life. You read his story and you understand that he knew about the pain of betrayal and loneliness and embarrassment. And we can all relate to that. He experienced fear and depression and desperation. He knew personal failure. He also knew public failure. He knew the woes of a dysfunctional family. Maybe you know something about that. Maybe we all know something about that. And even knew about rebellious children. He he knew how it felt to be misjudged and hated and wrongly accused. He knew what it was like to win. He also knew what it was like to lose. He's a man that we can latch onto, that we can relate to. He's a man that we can very much want to know more about because he felt the bone deep issues of life. And there's more chapters in the scripture that tell his story than any other person. And so to understand Psalm 23, in my opinion, begins with first understanding the man who wrote Psalm 23. And so that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna, we're gonna go back and we're gonna look at a snapshot of David's life. We're gonna try to understand his life a little better so that we can understand the song that he wrote, the song that we call Psalm 23. Now, when we first meet David in the scriptures in the Old Testament, he's the youngest in a house of seven older brothers. Just think about that for a moment. He's the youngest with seven older brothers all living in the same house. His father is a guy by the name of Jesse and he's a young man who has a date with destiny and he doesn't even know it. I just love that. He's just living his life. He's a teenager and he's got a date with destiny. His life's about to change and he has no idea what's about to happen. 
The king in Israel is a guy by the name of King Saul. He was the people's choice. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And uh, when it came to a majority vote, everybody said, hey, we want Saul. And Samuel, who was the prophet in those days in Israel, said, okay, if that's the guy you want, that's the guy you're gonna get. And so he anointed Saul to be the first king. But Saul had disobeyed God and his days were numbered. Samuel, the prophet, was very upset about all of this. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, at verse one, it says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now we know that God was looking for a man after his own heart and he had found his man in Bethlehem. He had found his man in the house of Jesse. When Samuel shows up, everybody's a bit concerned that the prophet of God is showing up. And so he goes to Jesse's house and he explains to Jesse that the kingdom is being taken away from Saul and he is there to crown or to anoint rather one of his sons to be the future king of Israel. And I can only imagine as a father, the paternal pride that Jesse must have felt. How exciting it was to think about that one of his sons was going to be king. That would make him the father of the king. I mean, that's just, that's a cool gig. That's great. That looks good on any resume. I'm the father of the king. You walk down the street, hey, who are you? It doesn't matter. I'm the father of the king. And so he was pretty excited, I imagine, as any father would be about the fact that one of his sons was going to be king. And so he brings seven of his sons in to meet Samuel. And if you remember this story, and maybe this is a fresh story for you, uh, but it's a great story and it's worth your time of reading. And like I said, you can read all about it in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He brings seven of his oldest sons in before Samuel. And Samuel just looks at one and looks at the other and looks at the other and looks at the other. And he's thinking to himself, "Mm, no, no. None of these guys are the king. I'm pretty sure I heard you correctly, Lord. I was supposed to go to Bethlehem. I was supposed to go to the house of Jesse and one of his sons, well, that was gonna be the guy who was gonna be the next king. I'm pretty sure I was right, but none of these guys are the man. And and then we read about in verse 11, it says, so Samuel asked Jesse, are all of these, is, is this all the sons that you have? And then Jesse responded, well, there is still the youngest. He is tending, and listen to this, don't miss this. He is tending the sheep. And so the first time that we're introduced to David as a teenager, he is a shepherd to his father's sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So think about this. And some of you men, I know you don't like to talk about it, and I know you don't like to think about it, but you can relate to this story. You know exactly how David felt. The first time that we're introduced to David, the writer of Psalm 23, he's the shepherd of his father's sheep and he's the son that his father consistently overlooked. He was the son that his father underestimated. When his father thought, which of my sons is destined for greatness? He thought of everybody else before he thought of David. When the prospect of one of his sons was going to be crowned king, it never dawned on him, it never occurred to him that David would be that guy, that David could be that king. And that's how we're introduced to David. Overlooked, underestimated, and on the low side of his father's affection. 
And so David is brought in from the fields to Jesse's house. And when we're first introduced to him, he's dirty and he smells like sheep. And so he comes in and as soon as Samuel sees him, Samuel just knows this is the guy. And Josephus, the great Jewish historian says that he took out his horn of oil, he poured it over David's head and the oil ran down his hair, down across his face, onto his neck and onto his shoulders. And the prophet of God, Samuel, leans in and whispers to David in his ear, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And you know the next thing that David did? You know what he did next? He didn't go down to the shops in Bethlehem to start trying on crowns. He didn't call up all of his friends and say, hey, let me tell you what just happened to me. The next thing that David did was he went back to the fields to care for his father's sheep. Because in his heart, he was a shepherd. And that's how we are introduced to David. That's the author of Psalm 23, a shepherd boy who found out he was destined to be king. 15 years is gonna go by, 15 years. That's, that's a lot of time. 15 years from the time that he's anointed to be king until he actually becomes king. And during that time, there's gonna be some good times and there's gonna be some bad times. Uh, there's gonna be some victories and there's gonna be some losses. Uh, sometime after he got anointed by Samuel, Israel found themselves in conflict. They were at war with the Philistines. And, and we read the story, it's a great story. They're all gathered at the Valley of Elah. The Philistines on one side, the Israelites on the other. And the Philistines had a killing machine, a nine foot tall giant by the name of Goliath. And he would walk out in the morning, and he would walk out in the evening and he would curse God and curse the armies of God. And he would challenge someone to a duel. And over there on Israel's side, beginning with Saul and all of his men down, was a bunch of men with hard, cold looks on their face, but fear in their stomachs. And no one wanted to fight Goliath. Meanwhile, back in Bethlehem, Jesse is concerned that three of his sons are fighting in this war, obviously. So he sends David, the youngest, to go check on his three oldest brothers who are fighting or getting ready or thinking about or trying to figure out a way not to fight the Philistines. He sends David to the Valley of Elah to check on the brothers. And when David shows up, it just happens to be the time that Goliath is over there spouting his curses at God and his curses at God's army. And he's looking around and everybody, everybody's just listening. Everybody's just standing there. Nobody's willing to do anything and nobody's even willing to say anything. David, something rises up on the inside of him and he's thinking, somebody's gotta do something about this. this. This can't be permitted. This can't go on. This guy can't talk about God this way. He, he can't talk about God's people this way. And so David says, I'm gonna fight him. I'm gonna fight him. I'm gonna fight this guy. I'm gonna take him down. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, King Saul says, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. And again, I just wanna point out to you, he's underestimated and overlooked and dismissed again. This is a theme in David's early life. And for some of you men, that's how you feel. David's your man. David is a man that you can attach yourself to to learn how to deal with a life experience where you constantly have felt undervalued, overlooked, and dismissed. This is David. 
In verse 34, it says, but David persisted. And listen to this, don't miss this. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. And so he goes back and he leans on his career as a shepherd. He goes back to this experience as a shepherd, which has made him who he is. It's formed him into the young man that he is. He says, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. <laughs> you go, David. I mean, this, this, is, this is David, this is the guy. He says, I've done this to both lions and to bears. And I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied and defiled the armies of the living God. See, David, he thought back as a shepherd and being a shepherd had taught him a lot about life. It's taught him a lot about himself and it's taught him a lot about God. And so this is the moment when he's gonna have one of his greatest victories. And the thing that brought him to this moment was his life as a shepherd. In verse 37, he says, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And David had learned something important along the way. He'd un he, he, he understood the fact that God's past faithfulness was assurance of God's future faithfulness. That's what he had experienced as a shepherd. That's what he had experienced when he fought the lion and the bear. And so he looked at his life in this present moment and he looked back and he saw the past faithfulness of God and he believed that it was an assurance of God's future faithfulness. It was his past victories over the bear and the lion that paved the way for his future vision where he absolutely confidently believed 125% that he was going to defeat this Philistine. That's David. That's what he's learning. This is David in the early years. This is David who wrote Psalm 23. And so it says, Saul finally consented and said, all right, go ahead and may the Lord be with you. I think that probably should read in the Hebrew, good stinking luck, uh, because nobody expected it to turn out well. And of course, you know the end of the story, David killed Goliath. And you know what he did to commemorate it? He wrote songs about it. And they are found in the book of Psalms. He, he wrote songs like this. The Lord is the light of my salvation. So why shall I be afraid? Tell me he wasn't thinking about that day at the Valley of Elah. The Lord is my fortress, fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? Tell me he wasn't thinking about standing there in the shadow of that giant Goliath. When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and they will fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. Of course he had to be thinking about that event. He wrote a song about it. That was David, this warrior songwriter. But after Goliath, life didn't get easier. A matter of fact, it got more difficult. Saul was a man of great insecurity, so he turned his sights on David and decided that now since David is more popular than he is, he wants David done with, he wants David dead. And so David's gonna spend the next few years running from Saul, running from the king, running from the king's resources, running from the king's men, running from the king's intelligence network. And so David's gonna spend the next few years of his life living in caves, in and out of caves. And over that time, David, he's gonna know what it's like to feel forsaken and forgotten by God. 
He's gonna know what it's like to struggle to hold on to the promise and the hope that the prophet Samuel had spoken into his ears that evening back in Bethlehem when he was anointed to be the future king. During those years when he was on the run from Saul, he understood what it was like to be without. He understood what it was like to feel the sting of loneliness. He knew what it was like to struggle emotionally with anxiety, with discouragement and depression. And it was during that time that somewhere along the way, he pulled out a pen and you know what he did? He wrote a song. And Psalm 142 is a song from that period of David's life. He said, I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints before him and I tell him all my troubles. When I am overwhelmed, you alone know the way that I should turn. Wherever I go, may my enemies, they have set traps for me. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares one bit about what happens to me. Then I pray to you, O Lord. I say, you are a place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. Hear my cry for I am very, very low. Rescue me from my persecutors for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison so that I can thank you. He wrote a song about it. David's learning. And every time he learned something, he writes a song to commemorate it. He'd learned that he heard enough to the point where he was willing to admit his pain. He would got to the place where he was honest enough to ask for help for the pain. And he'd gotten to the place where he was humble enough to begin to learn from his pain. Eventually, David becomes king and he's gonna become a successful king. He's gonna rule and he's gonna reign and he's gonna be very successful. He's gonna make the economy strong, the military strong, the border strong. Uh, David is gonna be the beloved king of Israel, maybe the most beloved king of Israel. And then the next big moment in his life happens when he's in his 50s, 20 or so years after he's been on the throne. And it's a story that many of us have heard, but the short version that makes it sound much more benign and less painful and less agonizing and less stressful than what it really was, was that David fell in love with Bathsheba, killed her husband in order to have her. A scandal broke out, David's life spiraled out of control and in the end, David, he failed as a husband, he failed as a man, he failed as a father, he failed as a king. And about that, he also wrote songs. Songs like Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. David experienced the grace of God, God's grace for his guilt. And he wrote a song about that in Psalm 32, where it says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin has been put out of sight. David would have these monumental moments with God and monumental moments in his life, and he would write a song about it. David realized that there was no guilt in his life that was any match for God's grace. That whatever capacity David had for sin, God had a much greater capacity to give grace. That no matter what your greatest failure is, God's grace is greater. That's what David learned. That's why he wrote songs about it so that you would know that's true for you and so that I would know that it's true for me as well. So David experienced grace. He was made great by the grace of God. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks because I love how 
this song, Psalm 23, ends, and it really does capture the thrust of David's life and what he had to struggle with through the majority of his life. But, but eventually, David's reign came to an end. He reigned for 40 years, and 1 Chronicles chapter 29 records the death of David. It says, David, the son of Jesse, was king over all of Israel. And during those years as king, and even before those years of king, David's life ran the full spectrum of human emotions. That's why he wrote songs that captured the real moments, the rough moments, the redemptive moments. He wrote songs that captured his life. And in doing so, he wrote songs that captured your life and my life as well. He ruled over Israel for 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. And then I love verse 28, he died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. And his son Solomon succeeded him as king. And I'm sure David did what many people will do in the latter years of his life. He looked back on the totality of his life with a clarity that only the latter years can offer. Hitchcock said that when we look back over our lives, we remember it like a movie. We take out the boring and the mundane and we remember the ups and the downs. We remember the great moments and the terrible moments. We don't so much remember the boring moments in between. And I imagine that in the latter years of life with the clarity of the end of life, David looks back over his life and he thinks about all of those moments. He thinks about that night in Bethlehem when they sent for him to come to his father's house. He remembers those years of what it felt like not to measure up to his father's expectations and love. He remembered what the lonely years inside and outside of caves running from Saul. He remembered the successes of being king and the moments of failure when he succumbed to his own passions. He thought about after his failures, how God restored him and how God gave him a promise of a dynasty that would never end. Bathsheba and him would go on to have Solomon and Solomon would be one of the greats, the wisest to have ever ruled. And he looks back over his life and towards the end of his life, he writes a song that captures his whole life. We call it Psalm 23. And as he looks back over his entire life experience, he pins the words, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In close, Psalm 23 is a song for you. I challenge you to read Psalm 23 this week and notice how many personal pronouns are in these verses. My shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me, he leads me, he refreshes my soul, he guides me, 
And when I walk, he's with me. He comforts me. He prepares for me. He anoints my head. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. This is a song for you, for your life. Your life is wrapped up in this song. Your experience is wrapped up in this song. And not only that, but this is a song for you today. Underline, circle, all the present tense verbs. He is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me right now in real time. He leads me. He's refreshing me. He's guiding me. He's comforting me. He's preparing for me. My cup is overflowing. This is a song for you. And it's a song for you today. It's a song about coming to those difficult moments in life and a shepherd who brought you to it is also the shepherd who will take you through it. Heavenly Father, I pray over the next few weeks that you would speak to us out of this song. Now that we understand a little bit about the life of the man who wrote the song, how he captured his entire life in these verses, I pray that we discover our own life in these verses because our life is found in this song. Thank you for the promise that even though we come to it, there is a shepherd who will take us through it. In Jesus' name.